Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. Today I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Yindi Geshinde. Yindi is a partner in the Baker McKenzie Dispute Resolution Team based in London and a member of the Compliance and Investigations Group. Yindi's practice includes a broad spectrum of complex and high-value international and domestic commercial litigation for multinational clients with a specialism in anti-bribery and corruption investigations, compliance and trust disputes. Yindi, an absolute pleasure to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, listen, let's let's dive right in. Let's start by discussing your personal and professional connections with Africa. Starting with the personal, how do you and Africa intersect? Well, I'm Nigerian by heritage. Um, my mother's family are from Oshun State originally, and my dad's are from Oyo State, um, though all of my extended family now live in Lagos and Ibadan. Um, that's both my grandma's majority of my aunts and uncles and quite a lot of cousins so quite a lot of the family's still over there um, my older brother was born in Nigeria but my parents actually left Nigeria before I was born um, they did some postgraduate training in Dublin and Ireland which is where I was born so slightly random and we were only there for a couple of years but it does mean that I carry an Irish passport which will be very handy post-Brexit. Fantastic. So you are a regular globetrotter before you even had the choice in the matter. Exactly right. <laughs> Fantastic. And on, on the professional side of things, where on the continent do you or, or did you, with the current circumstance, find yourself most commonly traveling or, or undertaking work in relation to? So I've conducted compliance and investigations work primarily relating to both Nigeria and South Africa. Um, And I last travelled to Nigeria last spring to deliver a seminar on compliance and corporate governance in Lagos um, in conjunction with another law firm to clients out there. I was actually due to be in Lagos again in July and September um, this year for more client roundtables, but obviously COVID put paid to those. um, So they'll be taking place virtually in October and November instead. And um, separately, I sit on the firm's Global Africa Strategy Steering Committee. So I'm responsible with the other steering committee members for driving the global firm's Africa strategy, which encompasses our offices in Cairo, Casablanca and Johannesburg, but also addresses our ways of working in the rest of the region where we don't have offices on the ground, but where we regularly advise, you know, foreign multinational investors with interests in other countries in Africa or international companies with operations that there and also sovereign states and then some of Africa's largest domestic companies too. Fantastic to hear. Now, I'm sure that it's an evolving strategy, but uh, could you could you tease us with some of the top line kind of decisions that are being made at Baker McKenzie at the moment in relation to, to Africa? What, what can we look forward to from the firm? Well, I mean, our very sort of lofty ambition really is to be the global law firm of choice in Africa. So although we don't have offices everywhere, you know, our ways of working do ensure that we can provide our clients with support all over the continent. And we're regularly having conversations with clients who are you know, looking to move into different markets there and want to do so with our support. So it's really about you know, focusing on certain clients in particular industries at the moment and working with them as they expand their strategies and, and making sure that we can partner with them and sort of walk alongside them really. Really as they as they go on that journey. 
Well, I, I'm always a big fan of client centricity, as I call it. Let let the people that pay the bills tell us where we should go and what we should do. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad glad to hear that resonating. And Yinda, you, you have a lot of experience in corporate crime and investigations. Yeah. How has COVID and associated changes such as lockdowns and a flight to e-communication, e-commerce and so on, altered the corporate crime fraud and, and corruption landscape? Um, quite significantly, Tom, I have to say. I mean, firstly, in terms of the behaviour that drives you know, us conducting investigations, I mean, a down economy and, and crises such as the one that we're experiencing create opportunities for fraud. It's generally accepted that the threat of fraud in emergency situations is higher than during normal times. And there has been a hike in fraud as many criminals have attempted to take advantage of the situation. So, for example, we saw a lot of, you know, um, selling counterfeit PPE or counterfeit or non-existing testing kits and so forth. Um, I think it's also estimated that a number of government schemes that were designed to ease some of the burden created by the pandemic, um, for example, the employee furlough scheme in the UK, have also been taken advantage of by fraudsters. Um, The UK's Revenue and Customs Agency is currently investigating almost 30,000 claims of fraud on the furlough scheme. And then in terms of corporations, I think ultimately, you know, people will continue to um, make bad decisions or respond badly to the pressure which we know has been generated by the pandemic and will certainly follow in its wake and this will also lead to misconduct which will need to be investigated. So for example um, sales teams under pressure to meet targets might cut corners from a compliance perspective. And then in terms of investigations themselves I mean the travel bans and the lockdowns have meant that obviously a lot more has to be done remotely and I think that that has had the biggest impact um, in terms of the investigations process on our ability to gather evidence and conduct interviews of witnesses and suspected wrongdoers. So in terms of evidence gathering, for example, I mean, we might typically go to a client's office to access um, hard or electronic records. And similarly, our or the client's e-discovery team would meet um, what we call custodians, you know, those holding the data to image their devices. And obviously, that's very difficult now, if not impossible, because, you know, companies aren't willing to put their staff's health at risk, and rightly so. Um, so I think the current situation means that there is more opportunity for the subject of an investigation or other hostile witnesses to be obstructive or attempt to destroy evidence. And, you know, without evidence, it's hard to conduct an effective investigation. So I think the current investigation, sorry, the current situation definitely requires more thinking about these issues up front. And then in terms of conducting interviews, well, certainly gone for now are the days where I'd hop on a plane and travel to meet a witness and conduct an interview in person. You know, for example, we know that the airspace over a number of African countries is only just starting to reopen this month tentatively. And going to do an interview in person would usually allow us to present the interview subject with documents for them to explain or conduct an in-person credibility assessment, you know, in part based on their demeanour and their reaction to our questioning. Um, Though often a lot of that is subject to cultural considerations. So there are workarounds for these and other aspects of the investigation process, which have been created really during these unprecedented times. You know, clients have had to adapt very quickly and we've had to come up with new methods to ensure that wrongdoing is still being investigated and stopped as soon as possible. Um, and that's particularly because, you know, the enforcement authorities are still very much at work. For example, the Department of Justice in the US made very clear at the outset that it was still going full steam ahead. Um, and similarly, um, some enforcement authorities in some African states are still pressing on with their investigations and conducting interviews. And similarly, you know, so so too is the Financial Conduct Authority in England, for example. Um, and then finally, I think in terms of compliance work, um, compliance teams are really now having to grapple with 
how they continue to effectively train staff remotely on the company's policies and procedures when it comes to anti-bribery and corruption, and how they convey the company's ethical culture and zero tolerance approach to bribery and corruption when teams are so disparate and when people are sitting at home alone and without you know the scrutiny of their boss or, or fellow team members. And that's a challenge that we're we're talking to clients about a lot at the moment. Absolutely. You know, I'm 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 really interested there in the uh the idea of conducting the interviews. You know, we we've all talked about how great it's been, everyone hopping onto video and e-communication, but it sounds like the whites of the eyes they're not they're not quite as clear through a camera <laughs> as they are when you're sitting opposite someone and and the same to some extent with e discovery you know e discovery mm-hmm. remotely is fantastic but hard drives are still hard drives you know not everything is being pushed up into the cloud so physically imaging of devices is is something that i hadn't you know thought of but but it's it's very interesting that you bring that to the to the forefront now on a on a slightly uh, different track here yindi you you were recently a made up partner at a global law firm so what advice do you have for young lawyers both at the start of their careers and secondly What's most surprised you, good or bad, with the move into a firm's partnership? (laughs) Good question. Um, I think in terms of advice for young lawyers, I think I would say, while it is important to find your path, um, I would definitely say they should be open to opportunities. So many of the great things that have come my way during my career so far were often as a result of me saying yes and seeing where it took me. Um, For example, clients to comments and to comments overseas. Um, I see sometimes with junior colleagues that they feel quite sure early on of the sort of work they do and don't want to do. And that's obviously fine. And it is important to have a good idea of that. But I think it is also important to stay open um, to opportunities that might come out of the blue and that may at first blush seem to be a deviation from the path that was originally planned out. And then secondly, in terms of what surprised me, um, i say on the good side, I think how many opportunities have really come my way already. Um, for example, you know, other partners offering to introduce me to their clients or get me involved in business development initiatives. I think that um, the, bar- the partner badge does still count for quite a lot, rightly or wrongly, um, with some clients and also maybe with other partners. And it's almost like a stamp of approval um, when the reality is that I've been doing a lot of the elements of this role for a few years now. And I think many partner candidates at other firms um, and newly made up partners would say the same thing. Um, and then in terms of the bad, well, nothing yet, but it is only month three. Um, I guess I, I guess I'm very aware that the book stops with me now, but um that was something I was aware of before. And it's not really a, a bad surprise. It's just something new to grapple with, I suppose. It's a lovely answer, Yindi. Thanks for being so candid with us. And <laughs> I think I, I I do want to give that shout out. Uh, say yes more. You know, mm. let's um let's not, you know, set ourselves on these uh single uh you know tracks. Let's always keep open to the opportunities. And what I love most about the African continent is it, it's unlimited you know the opportunities that can come our way the curveballs that can land at our feet at a moment's notice so for those that truly do want to you know travel the path uh less trod then i do recommend uh, uh the the continent as something to look at as well so fantastic to hear that from you i um, completely you, agree i completely agree i mean I, I never imagined joining when i first joined bakers that i'd be able to travel to Nigeria for work reasons you know I obviously would travel to see my family but it's been so great to combine that and to see so much of what 
the continent has to offer, but through a work lens as well has been has been really great. Yeah, that intersection of personal interest with professional. I mean, we all joke about, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I'm not mm. saying that happens every day, <laughs> but I've I've found that that working um, with African jurisdictions has allowed me to say that a lot more than where I built my career, which was working in, in UK, the US and Europe. So mm-hmm. absolutely great to hear that you're a kindred spirit in that regard. Yeah. And Yindi, you've spent over a decade on the firm's pro bono committee. Big interest of mine. So talk to us about some of the highlights associated with your time on the committee. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So when I sat on the firm's pro bono committee, I was responsible with the rest of the committee for shaping the London office's pro bono strategy. Um, And I was personally responsible for the firm's relationship with um, charities and not-for-profits in a wide range of areas, including child protection, um, environmental sustainability, and also refugee rights. And it was certainly the refugee rights element that was um, a real highlight in particular. Um, And I still act as one of the relationship partners to UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which is um, mandated to aid and protect refugees and forcibly displaced um, communities and stateless people. And they're one of our um, key pro bono clients. So definitely a lot of the work I've done in the past years has been related in terms of highlights to their work. Um, UNHCR often intervenes in immigration and asylum law cases in order to offer the court guidance as to the correct interpretation of certain areas of law, as they are an expert in refugee rights. And I've acted for them when they've intervened in cases both in the Court of Appeal um, in England and the Court of Session in Scotland. And that has been a highlight for me, as well as the highlight of seeing how good it feels for my colleagues when they get to use their legal skills to make a difference. Absolutely fantastic to hear. And uh, I must be quite candid. You you are talking to someone that spent a little bit of time in what was the Treasury Solicitor's Office in, uh-huh. uh, in the immigration team. So very familiar <laughs> with the work of, uh, of some of the entities you mentioned, but, but candidly on the on the other side sometimes, but not anymore, not <laughs> anymore. <laughs> now, f- further on the pro bono side of things, what do you think are some of the most missed or underappreciated benefits of pro bono when they are, you know, when it's genuinely embraced by a law firm? What are people missing out on if they're not pursuing this? I think um, two things, really. I mean, on, on one side, kind of following on from my previous point, I think, you know, how good it feels for a lawyer to put their legal skills to good use and give back. I think lawyers are often very time poor and and finding time outside of work to volunteer and otherwise give back is a real challenge sometimes. So pro bono work is a way to do it in a different guise. And I think um, firms shouldn't miss the chance to give their lawyers that opportunity. I'm really lucky because Baker's really recognised the value of pro bono work. And last year, over 65% of our colleagues across the office participated in it in some way or another. Um, I think, you know, the other thing I would say is the opportunity to work alongside clients. Um, A lot of our clients um, who are in-house often want to do pro bono work, but don't have as many opportunities coming their way because they're in in in-house legal teams. So we regularly have clients coming to us who want to partner with us. We call it pro bono teaming. And so we will work with them on um, a a project together. So right now I'm working with, um, you know, a multinational pharmaceutical company on a project related to domestic violence against women and girls. Um, So not the sort of topic I thought I'd be discussing with one of my pharma clients, but it's been a great way to get to know them in another way. And again, for junior lawyers, it's a great way for them to get to know their client counterparts and, and work alongside them rather than for them. 
I think that's an absolutely fantastic thing to highlight. And it certainly wasn't something that sprang to my mind. I mean, there's, would you rather be expensing yet another client dinner and talking about banalities? Or would you like to find a genuine connection with the client and say, do you want to come and do some good with me? You know, let's put our skills to the test. You can see the potential for genuine relationship building. Long-term relationship building is so much stronger if you were to pursue that kind of task rather than what we've traditionally been taught is is business development, you know, sending them a, a, a muffin basket. You know, I think I'd much rather um, showcase us working together to, to you know, improve the lives of, of refugees or, as you've said, you know, battle something as horrendous as, as domestic violence against women and girls. So I'm really glad that you've mentioned that. That's so interesting. And I do encourage all of our law firm listeners, give that some thought. Okay, you know, if you need to need to justify pro bono through through client development, here's a big, big flag waving to say there is a way to do it. And I'm sure that you'll soon fall into the pro bono um, trap, which is a very good one. It can become relatively addictive, um, (laughs) I think. A a final a final question pivoting back to the uh, the continually strange world that we find ourselves in. What do you think is going to be or is the biggest challenge and change brought about for law firms and your corporate clients in the legal department by the global COVID pandemic? I think, you know, one of the fundamental things is that where we all work will never be the same again. Um, Bakers was already pretty progressive about working from home. We had an agile working policy in place for quite a few years. So, Sending everyone home was a fairly smooth process, but I have friends at other firms and in-house who had bosses who were very resistant to the idea, which has obviously been completely blown out of the water. Um, and I think, you know, technology has come on leaps and bounds and will also the, affect the way that we conduct compliance investigations work, for example. And I've got clients who are heavily investing in data and analytics, for example, to try and predict the future of compliance issues and, and get ahead of um, issues that might come up later on. So. I think, you know, the remote working element is definitely here to stay and also how we harness technology and use that in our day-to-day jobs will also, um, has also been accelerated. Great to hear. And I think, you know, it's it's an evolving situation. I think that that question is probably, probably very, very broad indeed. And the, the, the biggest changes are, are something different for, for many, many people. But but I am impressed, as it sounds, you are with the, the pace of change and how mm. well everyone has been able to adapt. We, we, we keep on moving forward. Um, so, Yinni, that brings us to a to an end of today's episode. So I would like to thank you once again for joining me. Thank you very much. It was great. Real pleasure. Fantastic. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. For the back catalogue of episodes of the Africa Legal Podcast, you can tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And as always, for all the news, views, and insights that make your life as an African legal professional better, don't forget to visit us at africalegal.com. So without further ado, I have been Tom Pearson, and this has been the Africa Legal Podcast.